last week. And before that, we were, uh, we were in 1 Corinthians. If you can remember back a year ago, we finished up 1 Corinthians. And I wanted to take a break from going through the epistles, and I wanted to go back and visit a gospel. So we did that. It took us about a year. And now we're back in uh, 2 Corinthians, where we left off. And if you remember the the study through 1 Corinthians, you remember that there were a lot of problems going on in that church. It was a church that was filled with carnality. It was filled with division. It was filled with backbiting like you cannot believe. And Corinth was a very prosperous city. It was a city that was filled with entertainment. It was a city that was filled with pleasure. It was a city that was filled with sin. It's a lot like America. You know, that, that really was Corinth. In fact, um, Ray Stedman, who was a pastor back in the 60s, he used to call First and Second Corinthians First and Second Californians, you know, because it, it just really has a lot of application uh, to America and to where our society is at today. Uh, they were all about pleasure. They were all about just, you know, giving themselves over to whatever felt good. And that's where this church was that Paul planted. You know, kind of like uh, what people, you know, said to me. You could never plant a church there. That's probably what people were saying to Paul. Corinth? You're going to go to Corinth? I mean, come on. The very word Corinthian is synonymous with sin. If you were a Corinthian, that meant you were a person that was just totally given over to the flesh. That's a Corinthian, you know. Prostitution and, and, the, and the like. And so here... Paul had planted this church in Corinth and he had ministered there for about a year and a half. And then he left and, and, you know, he went to Ephesus and he spent time in Ephesus. And while he was there in Ephesus, some serious problems arose in the church in Corinth, major problems. And that's uh, what prompted him to send Timothy to Corinth. He said, Timothy, go there. You've got to deal with some things that are going on. Because they had written Paul a letter and told him about all this stuff. And so Timothy went there and then he came back and Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians to them. And then unfortunately, matters just got worse in Corinth. They didn't get better. They got a lot worse. And it actually began to now turn on Paul. And the people began to trash Paul. They said he wasn't really called. They said he wasn't an apostle. He couldn't teach. And so that was what uh, motivated Paul to make this painful visit um, to confront these troublemakers that he, he talks about in the beginning of chapter 2. And then there was still no solution to that. And his visit really didn't um, bring any change. And so he then wrote what was called a severe letter that we don't have uh, to them. It was delivered by Titus, and Titus spent some time there. And then after a great deal of distress, I mean, character assassination against Paul, backbiting, people coming into the church and bringing false doctrine, finally, the things began to get solved a little bit with Titus's ministry there. And, and Titus came back and he told Paul that things have gotten a little bit better. And that's when Paul wrote this letter that we call Second Corinthians. So that's a little bit of a backdrop. Uh, 2 Corinthians is Paul's most personal letter. 
where 1 Corinthians is really practical and Paul is dealing with problem after problem and issue after issue, this is more personal. Paul opens up his heart to the people. If you want to get into the heart and the life of the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians is the great book for that. It gives us a close look at the things that Paul dealt with in ministry. And Paul really wrote this letter as a defense of his ministry. And as a defense of his authority as an apostle. And he also wrote it to refute the false teachers that had moved in to this church. The theme of this book is that weakness is a source of strength in our life. In that God's strength is made evident in our life through our own weakness, through our own suffering. And that suffering is the tool that God uses to make us into mature believers. This book is all about suffering. In fact, those people, those of us maybe who believe that Christians don't suffer, that you come to Christ and everything is just better and your life just, you know, never has a problem again, you probably want to take the pages of Second Corinthians and just go ahead and rip those right out of your Bible because it flies in the face of that thinking. Paul just basically pins a letter telling them of all his sufferings and of all his difficulties. And so that's, um, that's really a theme of this book. And the key word really, along with suffering, is comfort. Twenty-nine times the word parakletos, comfort, is used in this epistle, this letter. And this morning... As we look at the first seven verses of chapter 1, we're going to see two things in our text. First, we're going to see Paul's greeting, the standard greeting, uh, and it's found there in the first two verses. We're going to see Paul's greeting. And then, verses 3 through 7, we're going to see Paul's lesson on suffering. So, doesn't that just sound like a great message? Paul's lessons on suffering. I mean... Those are best-selling books in the Christian bookstore, right? When you go in there, it's like, hey, look at the number one best-selling book, Lessons on Suffering. No, it isn't. It's like how to live happy, you know, how to have a joy-filled life. Where it, Lessons on Suffering is not at the top of people's conversations today. And yet, this is something that we're going to see throughout the uh, book of Second Corinthians and certainly this morning. And so Paul's greeting. Let's read it, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul opens up with a standard greeting. And the first thing that I want us to notice here is that Paul wrote this letter in the first place. I think there's a lesson in that for us. That Paul would even take the time to sit down and write this letter. Paul had a real heart for these people. But we have to understand that these people had absolutely trashed Paul. They said he was not called. They said he couldn't teach. They said he was ugly. I mean, okay... He's not called and he can't teach. That's okay, but he's ugly. I mean, that's pretty personal. 
he can handle the other stuff, but he's ugly. And I can kind of relate to that. You know, that Paul was kind of short. He was a little bit overweight, some people say. He had a crooked nose. He couldn't see very well. He was balding. I mean, it sounds like a biography of me. It's like a picture of me. I'm like, all right, I can relate to Paul, man. That's great. But the people had just trashed Paul. And I think if I were Paul, I would have written them a letter, and it would have been about three words. You know, you can just come up with those on your own. Whatever whatever you want to say, that, that's, what, that's what I would have been saying to them. You know what? This, this is what you can do. I don't even care about you guys. But we see here that Paul had a real heart for these people. That he would even sit down and write a letter to them. And here's the lesson for us. Is that God doesn't allow us to quit ministering to people just because they treat us badly. That's our fleshly tendency though, isn't it? I'll tell you it is for me. When people leave the church and they, you know, say, oh, Ryan said this and Ryan hates women and Ryan this and Ryan that and, you know, and that is something that somebody said, you know, Ryan hates women. I'm like, what? I'm married to one. I have a daughter. I don't hate women. What are you talking about? Crazy. Come on. And I want to like, I want to call these people. I want to just give them my, you know, my heart, man. I want to give them like a little bit of talking to. And when I see them in the grocery store, I just want to walk right by them and not even say a word. Well, maybe I want to say a word, but not nice words. But that's not what God is asking us to do. God says, hey, do you have people that have treated you badly? Do you have people that have trashed, trashed you? Do you have people that have, you know, slandered you? Minister to them. Reach out to them. Because I'll tell you what, it will defeat the enemy like that. People are like, why are you, you know, even talking to me? Why do you want to pray for me? Why, why, why are you asking me how I'm doing? When I said this about you and I said that. Don't think that people don't know. They know what they said about you. They know how they treated you. You don't need to bring it up. And they're going to walk away and they're going to be absolutely convicted. And then you can walk away and go, yeah, God. No, I'm kidding. But it is, in a sense, you know, it, it is a powerful way in which we can have victory in our life. Is this simple thing. Minister to those that have hurt you. God doesn't allow us to just turn our back on people and quit ministering to people because they treated us badly. That's the first thing that we see here. Of course, we have this uh, common greeting of Paul. He says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He was called by God to be an apostle, not of his own doing, not of his own calling. He didn't go to apostle school. He, he didn't, you know, have this lifelong dream of being an apostle. But God had groomed him. God had been preparing him even before Paul was a Christian. What was Saul doing? He was a leader. He was using his apostolic gifts, but in the wrong way. And you know what, you guys? The things that God is calling you to do, they will come very naturally to you in the sense that you'll have even seen those propensities in your life before you got saved. You'll even see those things in your life 
before you came to even know what a spiritual gift is. The, they, the things that come very naturally and very easy to you and things that you enjoy. And so how would this read if this were your letter? You know, Ryan, a pastor of Jesus Christ by the will of God, or how would you fill in this? John, a carpenter. Susie, a homemaker. Bob, a, a physician. Whatever it is that God has called you to do, that is how you would insert your name into this by the will of God. And the things that God is calling you to do, you guys, they won't be things that you hate. You know, I don't think Paul hated being an apostle. I don't think Paul said, man, I don't ever want to be an apostle, you know, and then he's like, oh, I shouldn't say that because that's the very thing that God's going to make me do, you know. No. That idea is crazy. People say, oh, I guess this need in the children's ministry. I hate kids, but I guess I'll go do it, you know. And then you just hear the kids just screaming and crying back there, you know, running for their lives, you know. It's like, oh, I hate junior hires, but I guess I'll be ministering to them. No, if you hate people like that, that's not where God is calling you. I guess I'm going to be a missionary. I hate foreigners, though. Can't stand anybody that's not from America. No. God's going to use you in the things you enjoy. You're going to love it. I mean, I love to be a pastor. Nothing that I would rather be doing. And, and all the times I think about quitting, which is like every day. But no, I'm kidding. But all the times I think about quitting, I think, what, what else would I do? This is what God's called me to. And, you know, I love to go on mission trips. I, I love to, to reach out to, to the people in Mexico. You know, when we go down to Mexico, I love to do that. It, it's an awesome thing. And so God's not asking us to do things that we don't want to do, you know, in, in a sense of how we're being used. It's not going to be something that you just hate. It's going to be something you enjoy. So you might say, well, you know, I really enjoyed drinking, Pastor Ryan. Is that how God's going to use me? No. No, that's probably not it. I mean, anything not sinful, you know what I mean? I don't think God's going to use your sin, but things that you enjoy that are profitable. And so, he was an apostle by the will of God. And then we notice that this was a letter written to the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints who are in all Achaia. And so this letter was written to the church at Corinth, and then it was also addressed to all the saints in Achaia or that surrounding area. And so it would be sort of like, you know, uh, to the Church of God in Primeville and all the saints in Central Oregon. That, that's how it would be written if it were today. And here's the thing. Is that Paul assumed that this letter would be spread to people outside of the church. To, out, to people outside of, you know, their little group. That they would be taking it to the saints in their surrounding area and that they would be using it to bless them. And there's another lesson in that for us, in, in that as Christians, we're called to share what we receive. 
Now, that's not what the world tells us. The world says, hoard it, keep it for yourself, you know, think about yourself. It's all about number one, right? Look out for number one because nobody else is. Remember Y2K? I remember just like standing back and I felt like I was in like the twilight zone during the whole Y2K thing. Because I remember Christians who seemingly were very mature and had their head on straight and all of a sudden they were like the most selfish, demonized people in the world. Like, I'm hoarding everything, you know, and just water and food and beans, you know, and I, we've been getting stuff from this these people in Andrew's family that were totally into it. And now our garage is like filled with dried beans that we're never going to use. But I remember that time I'm just thinking, man, this is not biblical. This, this whole like hoarding thing. You know, I mean, okay, if you're going to share it with your neighbors, but I remember people had like padlocks that were, you know, like the size of their head. You know, and just like lock down city, you know. Nobody's coming into my house, you know. It's all about my family, man. You're never going to eat my food. You guys can die for all I care. It's like, wow, this is insane. And then we woke up on January 1st, 2000. It was just like, you know, the sun came up and the phone rang, you know. Computer worked. And it's like, okay, that was a waste of time. But I just remember that whole time just thinking, man, what in the world is going on in the church? And that that is sort of the philosophy of the world. Hoard it. Keep it for yourself. But God says, give it away. As you freely received, freely give. It's more blessed to give than to receive, right? And, and get it, give it away. Get it, give it away. And that's what we see here. Hey, you get this letter, be blessed by it, and then give it away. Give it out to other people. It's a great lesson for us. And then Paul says, verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these Siamese twins of the New Testament, grace and peace. Standard greeting of Paul. Grace. Charis. Shalom. Peace. The standard Greek in standard Hebrew greeting. Shalom. Charis. And the thing is, you guys, is that you'll always notice that grace always precedes peace. Paul never says peace and grace. He always says grace and peace. And there's a simple point in that. And that is that we cannot experience God's peace without first experiencing God's grace. You will not have the peace of God unless you've experienced the grace of God. What do I mean by that? Well, simply put, unless you're saved, you won't have peace. And even if you are saved, you won't necessarily be experiencing it all the time unless you're living daily in God's grace. Because there is peace with God and then there's the peace of God. God's peace is twofold. It's the peace with God which is positional. It's something we receive by virtue of our relationship with Christ. We have peace with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. We've been reconciled. The relationship that was once divided 
we were once at enmity with God. Now we've been brought into right relationship with God. Through the cross, we've been given peace with God. But you can have peace with God positionally and yet not be experiencing the peace of God practically, daily. There's a lot of talk about peace, especially in light of what's going on in the Middle East and in the world around us, right? A lot of talk about peace. You've got people that bumper stickers, visualize world peace. It's like, yeah, that's working. That's working real well. To sit there at the stoplight, yes, peace. Mm. And now that guy that has strapped bombs to his chest, he just decided not to get on that bus just because I visualized it for a minute. No, it's absolutely crazy. There's lots of talk about peace. There's lots of ideas about how we can achieve peace. But here's the thing. The Bible's very clear that until the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, comes and sets up His kingdom, there will be no peace on this earth. And so, you know what, you guys? There probably won't be peace in our lifetime, but there can be peace in our life. It's a big difference. We can be having turmoil going on around us. We can be having all kinds of issues in our life, personally. And yet, we can be experiencing the peace of God. We may not have peace in our lifetime. But we can have peace in our life. And Paul gives us some insight on how to achieve that in Philippians chapter 4. He says, look, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. That's not extreme at all, is it? This is kind of in the middle somewhere there. That's very extreme. Be anxious for zero. Nothing. But in everything. Paul is like black and white. I love that about the guy. Just, you know, cut and dry, black and white. Nothing. In everything. And he says, this is how you can do that. You can have peace in your life if you'll begin to not worry, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, making your requests known to God. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so how do we have peace? It isn't by visualizing It's not by thinking about it. It's by giving it to the Lord. It's by praying and worshiping. You guys, in your anxiety, in your worry, if you'll begin to give those things to the Lord, if you'll begin to worship instead of worry, it will be amazing what God does in your life. If you'll just begin to worship the Lord instead of worrying about things, It'll be amazing to you what God does. You can't have worry and worship going on at the same time. So what are you worried about right now? Just begin to worship the Lord. Begin to praise Him. Begin to to pray and seek His face. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. It's an amazing thing. So moving on now to Paul's lessons on suffering. Paul's lessons on suffering. Verses 3 through 7. Let's read it together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves 
are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our comfort or our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the comfort. Paul's lessons on suffering. Three things. If you're a note taker, three truths about suffering in our text. First of all, very simple, but God allows it. God allows it. Secondly, God comforts us in it. And thirdly, God uses it. And so first of all, God allows it. Now this is revolutionary to a lot of people. Because what's the common question? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there suffering? How come I came to Christ and and everybody told me that my life would just get better and in fact it got worse? My wife left me or my husband hates me because now I'm a Christian and he doesn't want to have anything to do with it or my kids, you know, just are horrible and my job is is so difficult or I lost my job or I lost that loved one. I thought when I came to Christ, everything was just going to be great and awesome and all the things in my life were just going to take care of themselves. No, the Bible doesn't promise us that at all. The Bible promises us that this life is hard. It's difficult. It's filled with trials and tribulations and suffering. And so the first thing, you guys, that we need to understand is that God allows trials. And there's not one particular verse that I'm drawing that from here. It's just all over this passage and it's all over the Bible. And this teaching that God wants us to be healthy and wealthy is so unbiblical it's not even funny. I mean, I don't know what Bible they're reading, but it's not the one that I have. And I mean, honestly, I would like that to be true. But it's not. So let's not try to make it true. Well, God wants you to be healthy. healthy. God doesn't want anybody to suffer. Nobody should be sick. And if you are, it's because you don't have enough faith. What? What are you talking about? So, you're telling me the Apostle Paul didn't have enough faith? That he was in rebellion to God? I mean, it's all the way through the Bible. The men and women that were powerfully used by God were people that suffered. You guys, think about Job. The Bible says that Job was the most righteous man on the earth. Look at what he went through. Lost his whole family. Lost all his possessions. Physically, he was a wreck. He just had boils all over his body, just in pain, night and day. Such pain that he was taking clay pot pieces and rubbing his skin, trying to relieve some of the burning and itching. God had suffered. Jeremiah, he suffered so much. He was thrown in prison. He never had one convert in his ministry. He was called the, the weeping prophet. Isaiah, 
was sawn in half? I mean, can you imagine being sawn in half? Doesn't sound real fun, you know. And then, and then, how about the the, the greatest example? Jesus. Did Jesus suffer? I think so. Quite a bit. And so, what makes us think that we're not going to have any suffering? You know, in ministry, a lot of the trials that you face are, are very similar to the ones that Paul faced, in that people just don't like you. I don't know what it is. But, you know, all of a sudden, you went from being the greatest thing since sliced bread to now you're relegated to, you know, sewer water. And it's like overnight. It's like, wow, I don't know how that happened. But that's what happens. And all of a sudden, people don't like you and they, they you know, slander you. And, and sometimes it really gets to me. And I start to think, you know, this isn't fair and I feel sorry for myself. And then the Lord always reminds me. If everybody didn't like me when I was here on the earth, what makes you think that everybody's going to like you? It's like, oh yeah, that's true. Not everybody liked Jesus. And he suffered because of it. And we will experience the same thing. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Peter talks about suffering and trials, not as a maybe, but as a for sure thing in his epistles something that you will experience. And it shouldn't drive us away from the Lord. It should drive us to the Lord. It shouldn't make us doubt God's existence. It should drive us to understand His presence in our life even more. And so the first thing is very, very important that you understand this, and that is that God allows suffering. Whatever you're going through presently, you guys, you need to understand that it's been channeled and filtered through the love of God. That thing, it came before the Lord. It wasn't like, you know, God all of a sudden like tunes into your life, you know, through all the, the fuzzy, you know, stuff. Like, you know, I'm trying to, oh yeah, there they are. Oh man. Wow, they're really going through it, aren't they? Change the channel. I don't want to see that. It's not like that at all. God knows what you're going through. And He allowed it to happen. It was filtered through His love. And in that thing, it came before His sovereign plan. And God said, let that pass through. That'll be good for Ryan. He needs that. That'll humble him. That'll make him more like me. That'll make him more useful. You see, you guys, God allows it. You've got to understand that. It's very important to your theology. Secondly, God comforts us in it. And so we're going through it. But not alone. Not on our own. We're not on an island. God will comfort us through it. Look at the end of verse 3. In the beginning of verse 4. It says that He's the Father of mercies. He's the God of all comfort. Who comforts us in all our tribulation. You guys, God wants to comfort you in the midst of your difficult circumstances. He wants to be there for you, if you'll allow Him to. The psalmist said that He's a strong tower, and the righteous run to Him, and they are safe. He's our rock. Now, there's not a lot we can depend on in this world. Certainly not people. They let us down. 
Certainly not our favorite sports teams. I mean, you know, it's like Red Sox fans say. They'll break your heart, you know. That's that's my Seahawks, my Mariners. They break your heart. Still mad at those refs from last Super Bowl, but I we won't get into that. Now there's some people I'm bitter against. And it's okay. God told me it's okay, because he's mad about it too. <laughs> But God wants to comfort us. He wants to be that strong tower. He wants us to run to Him in the midst of a world that is just changing all the time and that there's nothing that we can depend on. And this amazes me for a couple of reasons. Do you notice here that Paul doesn't like focus on his problems? He's focused on the Lord. Because if it were me, I would have started out writing the letter, all the problems I was having. You know, hey, you guys, you just, you know how much turmoil you put me through? How much heartache I'm going through at your hands? But Paul focuses on the Lord. He says, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Father of mercies. He's the God of all comfort. He says, look, you want to have the key to overcoming difficult circumstances, get your eyes off yourself and focus on the Lord. Well, that's cliche, man. You don't know what I'm going through. Well, I can guarantee you it's nothing compared to what Paul was going through. And Paul says, focus on the Lord. And you know what? That might be cliche. People say that all the time, right? Well, bro, just focus on the Lord, man. Well, look, it's cliche, but it's the greatest piece of advice that you can ever receive. Take your eyes off yourself. Take your eyes off your circumstances. Paul wasn't focused on the backbiting, the character assassination, the false doctrine. He says, focus on the Lord. And sometimes we make our problems, we make our trials, we make our suffering a lot bigger than it needs to be because we focus on it. And the Lord says, just take your eyes off that. Take your eyes off you know, your dad and your mom and the horrible upbringing you had, move on. Take your eyes off whatever it is that you're going through and place them on the Lord. Set your mind on things above, right? Set your mind on things above. Think on these things, the Bible says. There's the battle right here. It's in your mind. you gotta, you got to start winning that battle. You start getting your eyes off of all the things that, you know, your spouse isn't to you. You gotta start getting your mind off all the things that aren't going your way in this life. You gotta start getting your mind off of your difficulties and your problems and start putting them on the Lord. Because He wants to comfort you. He wants to take you and wrap you in His arms and just show you that He's got it under control. And there's comfort in that. If you're trying to find comfort in any other way, you're not going to find it. You're not going to find it in sweet comfort. I'll tell you that. You know, you're not going to find it in a bottle. You're not going to find it in a prescription drug. You're not going to find it watching Dr. Phil. There's no comfort. There's comfort in the Lord and in Him alone. 
And if we'll run to Him, we'll be safe. Hey, our circumstances, you guys, they may not get any better. Your physical ailments may get worse. Your family problems may get worse. Your job situation might keep tumbling out of control. I don't know. We can't control what goes on, but we can control how we respond to it. And we need to allow the Lord to comfort us. And so God allows it, but God comforts us in it. That's the second truth about suffering. The third thing, and it's twofold, is that God uses it. And we're going to see that He uses it in two ways. God allows it, God comforts us in it, and then God uses it. And I'll tell you what, you guys, that's encouraging that God uses it. Because I think from a practical standpoint, if we think, well, wow, God uses it, that makes it a lot better right off the bat, doesn't it? Because you remember in high school, what was the common complaint? When are we ever going to use this? You know, this is a waste of time. I'm never going to use this. You know, that's why all the guys go to wood shop and, you know, the girls skip class, you know. Because I can use this. I can use wood shop, man. You know, I can use welding or whatever. I can use auto shop. But where am I going to use calculus? I mean, come on. Except the four guys with pocket protectors. You know, who's going to use that? And now they're running this world. And you wish you were one of those guys with the pocket protector. They were the nerd. And now you wish you were the nerd. But the thing is, is that if you thought you were going to use it, then you're into it. And God's telling you this morning, I'm going to use it. I'm going to use it in your life for a couple different purposes. First of all, He uses it to make us useful. How many of you, don't raise your hands, have prayed, Lord, I want to be used by you. God, use me. And then like a month later, you find yourself in the midst of fiery trials. And it's like, Lord, what's going on? I didn't want trials. I want to be used by you. And God says, exactly. If you want to be used by me, it comes through fiery trials. That's how you become useful to me. Because as we read here, that God comforts us in our trials, in our tribulation, in our suffering, so that we might what? Feel sorry for ourselves? Buy a cabin on a hundred acres up in the mountains and isolate ourselves from everybody? No. Quit going to church? No. So that we might hate everybody? No. God comforts us in our suffering so that we can comfort others. There's a purpose in it. We suffer, we receive His comfort, and then we give it away. It's that whole reciprocating factor of giving away what you've received. And God says, there's suffering in your life because I want to use you. And so if you're going through difficulties right now, it's because God wants to use you. God wants to use your life. In Psalm 84, you don't need to turn there, but listen to the words of Asaph. Actually, Korah. A psalm of the sons of Korah. 
Listen to what he says here. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. In other words, he's not a person that's just stationary, that's stuck in a rut. He's a person that's moving because this Christian walk is a pilgrimage. He's not stuck in trials that he went through 20 years ago. He's not complaining about things that happened to him when he was a kid. He realizes this life is a pilgrimage and I'm moving on. And then listen to this. As they pass through the valley of suffering, they make it a spring. As they pass through the valley of suffering, they make it a spring. A couple things. First of all, we're passing through it. You don't stay in it forever. God's not like, yep, you're going to suffer forever, buddy. Just stay right there. That's where I want you to be. Just in the valley of suffering. No, you're passing through it. There's times of suffering. There's times of difficulties. And you pass through it. Because your heart is set on a pilgrimage. Your heart is to move on. Your heart is to learn and to grow. And to become better, not bitter. But then here's the key. Not only are they passing through it, but they make it a spring. What does that mean? Well, it means they make it something that someone else can be refreshed by. Something that someone else can be blessed by. And so you take that murky, dark, polluted thing that was going on in your life and you say, God, make it a spring so that someone else can be blessed by this thing that's happened in my life. And then the next person comes and they're refreshed. But you know what too many of us do? We say, yep, that's my dark, murky hole and I'm going to stay here forever. I'm not passing through it. And then people come into our life and they just get polluted by our bitterness. And God says, I want to bless people. I want people to be refreshed by your life because with the comfort that you've received, I want you to comfort others. And so God wants to use us. The very things that you're going through are going to be opportunities in the future for you to minister. When you lose a loved one, you guys, there's a there's an awesome opportunity for you to minister to people that are going through similar things and, and be able to sympathize with them. When you are going through physical difficulties, when you're not healthy and you just have a lot of pain and maybe you, you've got, you know, cancer or, or maybe you have diabetes or you've just had a lot of physical trials in your life... God can use that for you to minister to people that are going through similar things. But what do we normally do? We just feel sorry for ourselves. I know that when I lost my eye at 17 years old, that wouldn't have been my choice. I mean, had I had been given the opportunity to choose. You know, like those books that you read as a kid that give you the different endings? You know, what ending do you want? Do you want this ending or this ending? It's like multiple choice. I've heard that they're going to start having movies like that where you can actually, you know, hit a different button for different types of endings. Do you want it to be a sad ending? Do you want it to be this kind of ending? You know, we like choices. I was at Sherry's the other day. It took me like 20 minutes to decide what I wanted to eat for breakfast. They have like 1,400 things. 
None of them are good for you. They all look pretty good. None of them taste that good. They all look good in the menu. You ever notice that? But we have a lot of choice and we like choices. And if I had a choice whether or not that would have happened to me, I said, no, I don't want that to happen. I said, I want that thing to whiz right by my head. But God allowed it. And I know that he allowed it because he wants to use me. And I've been able to be used in light of it. And I know that it brought humility into my life. I know that it brought maturity into my life. You guys, that's why the older we get, the more usable we are for the kingdom. Look at Moses. Moses spent the first 40 years of his life thinking that he was pretty hot stuff. And then God had to take him through another 40 years of suffering so that he would learn that he was nothing. And then God used him for 40 years. That's why when we're youth, when we're young, we're kind of cocky and arrogant because we haven't suffered that's why Americans tend to be more arrogant and cocky and full of themselves than the rest of the world. Because we haven't suffered like the rest of the world. You meet people in third world countries, and there's a maturity about their life. There's a humility about their life. Because they've suffered. They've went through it. And so you guys, if we want to be useful, it's going to come through suffering. That doesn't mean we go out you know, and try to find it. It'll find you. Not to try to find it. Don't be like a, you know, masochist, you know, trying to just destroy your life. That's not the point. The point is, when it comes, embrace it and learn from it. Because God wants to use it. Well, a second way that God wants to use it is He wants to use it to draw us unto Himself. Bear with me for a few more moments. He wants to use it to draw us to Himself. And we see that in verses 5 through 7. That as the sufferings of Christ abound in us. It wasn't like Paul suffered one or two times. They abounded. This word means to overflow. Read 2 Corinthians 11. Read about the sufferings that Paul went through. It was huge. It makes our suffering look like a, look like a day at the beach. Paul says, as the sufferings of Christ abound, overflow in us, so His comfort abounds through Christ. And so God uses these sufferings to draw us unto Himself so that we might see Christ, so that we might see His comfort, so that we might be drawn close to Him. The more we suffer, the more He's with us. The Bible says He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's with you through it all. In the book of Daniel, chapter 3, find the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's a familiar story. I think it has an awesome application here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were Jewish guys that were taken captive into Babylon. And they were groomed by King Nebuchadnezzar to be men of wisdom and, and men of prominence there in that society. And the king came up with this decree that whenever the Babylonian orchestra played this particular song, everyone was just to bow down to his golden image. 
Very simple. You hear the song? Bow down. Images like rolling through town, you know, and boop, 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 whatever the song was, you know, and everybody just bows down. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're like, we're not going to do that. We won't do it. And, and the thing came rolling through town. Everybody bowed except them. Won't do it. And the king said, look, you know, because he liked these guys. They, they were groomed to be successful. He said, you guys need to bow to the image or you're going to get thrown in the fiery furnace. We don't care what you do to us. We're not going to bow. So the song started up again. They wouldn't bow. And so the king, who was now extremely upset, said, fire up the furnace seven times hotter than usual. And they took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they threw them in the fiery furnace. And even the guys that threw them in died because it was so hot. And so they throw them in there, and Nebuchadnezzar's figuring, yeah, they ought to be like, you know, roasted marshmallows by now. And he looks down in there, and what does he see? But he sees them walking around. He says, what's going on? Not only are they walking around, but there's now four of them. They're like multiplying. And the fourth is like the Son of God. And they yank him out of the fiery furnace, and not even their hair or their clothes were cinched. Here was the thing. That in the midst of their fiery trial, literally, they saw the Lord clearly. They saw Jesus. If they hadn't been thrown in the fiery furnace, they wouldn't have seen Jesus in that way. But they, through the midst of the fiery furnace, that should have consumed them, that should have destroyed them, they were able to see Jesus more clearly. You guys, the fiery trials that you're going through right now, the world looks on and they say, well, that should destroy you. That should just tear you up. That should just ruin your life. And you say, no, no, the Lord's using it. In fact, I see Jesus more clearly now than I've ever seen him before. It's a great thing. God wants to use your trials, you guys. He wants to use your suffering to make you more useful and to draw you unto himself, to show you who he is. God allows trials. God comforts us during our trials. And God uses our trials. Paul was a man who went through a lot of suffering. And we're going to learn how we can deal with those things as we go through 2 Corinthians. Let's stand and pray together.